good afternoon, all of you. I heard a good report on Nelson giving you a good presentation last night. Then I got up here and there's these little glitter things all over the table. What did he wear? What was going on? I, I, I found out it's the artwork of one of our little ones, which is sweet. Uh, no problem. I uh, decided to give my eyes a little rest last night. They were hurting pretty bad. Not only that, I was in the middle of a birth process with a, a goat, and everything came out fine, so that one worked. But anyway, I, it did help a bit, and they are better some, so maybe they'll last through the service here. <clears throat> Before getting into this, lest I forget, I want to thank you all for making these seven days a truly, I think, wonderful experience. We've had peace and quiet and safety, and everything has gone very smoothly. It's been an awful lot of work go into everything, and I sometimes maybe we miss that, but when everything's clean and everything's done and all the food's prepared and it's cleaned up after, and there's a lot of work done by a lot of people, and I certainly do appreciate the effort that you put into it and uh, generous offerings. Everything has just been a wonderful time, and I do appreciate all of you. But I did have one thought this morning that I had to think this through. I think I made a comment a few days ago that an awful lot of Texans here in this bunch. The last night I counted it up. I couldn't believe it. Eighteen of us here have either been born in Texas or lived there a long, long time, enough to be badly influenced. <laughs> Only three uh, are from the Pacific Northwest, and the rest of us have roots of some kind in Texas. I spent my first 18 there and escaped. That was enough. But uh, nonetheless, Texas is a good place to be from. I, I will admit that. And I'm glad we're from there and here now. We did have people from all over the country here at first, and some of them left and some have died. And, uh, we remain, so we shall carry on. I don't mean to be disparaging you or me. Uh, God calls who he calls, and he brings who he brings. So that's good. All right, last time I spoke, we got into Galatians 5 uh, about, first of all, the liberty that we have in Christ. And I've kind of wrestled with that in some ways in explaining it to people. Uh, what do you mean liberty? We have to do this, and we have to do this, and we have to do that, and we need to do something else. But what it boils down to is our minds. We need to be free in our minds from pain, from guilt, from frustration, all those things that can impinge upon us having a happy life, an enjoyable life because they weigh us down. And that's what Paul is explaining here to these people because some of them were beginning to drift back into worldly things. 
Uh, they'd come out of the world. They'd made changes. And because of the habit of the world, because of uh, living in it, they'd begun to drift backward. And he, I think he called them in one place, oh, foolish Galatians, as I recall. Uh, they were drifting away from the things that had begun to set them free from the consequences and errors of their past that drag us down, that weigh on us. And we tend to, even when converted, or partially converted, which is all the best of us, is, is the best any of us are, is partially, we're not totally converted, but we're being converted from our old way of thinking and our old way of acting and to God's way. And he calls it the freedom and the liberty of Christ. Well, these days picture the liberty that he gave us, and it is in just this way that Paul is explaining it, that we had errors of the past, all kinds of consequences from selfish living, from doing our thing our way and not considering others enough, so we hurt them, we destroyed relationships. We've made it difficult for ourselves to dwell in happiness and peace because of all the problems others have, A, created against us by offending us with their actions and words, and us, them, with ours. And he tells us very clearly that we are not to give offense, so we have to be careful not to hurt or offend anyone. And then he says, also, don't take offense. And that's a difficult one, because if somebody says something you don't like or about you, or whatever, you tend to get offended very easily. We we have our little chips on our shoulders or whatever that are essentially pride, vanity, ego, self. It's the self that is offended. My feelings about me. I have my idea about what I am, and if you say anything different than what I think of me, I'm not going to like it. This is the way the human being, the human mind works. And culture teaches us that. So we're bound in that kind of heaviness of the past. What did Christ do? He came and lived a perfect life without making mistakes. And he did not take offense. A lot of people did a lot of things to him that would have offended us clear to the bone. And he did not take personal offense. Now, when they were misusing the temple, he had righteous anger, and he chased them out of there on no uncertain terms, overturned their tables, and was fairly violent about it. He wanted them to get the picture. But it was not a personal offense, because if he had allowed his personal vanity, pride, and ego to crop up, that would have been sinful. So he did not allow that. That never happened. And then he was willing to die, to go through horrible pain and have his blood drained out on the ground for us, that we might have liberty how? Freedom how? Freedom from our past. Freedom from doing things that caused the problems 
that we have and other people have. How do most relationships get broken? Because somebody broke one of God's laws. You don't like to be lied to. You don't like to be stolen from. You don't like any of God's laws to be broken that impact or affect you in any way. And yet it has happened. So what did he do? He removed all the guilt. He removed all the consequences, not the consequences, all the penalty of sin, which is death. We don't have to die for our sins. Not only that, when he removes the sins, he says they'll no longer be mentioned to us. He's not going to bring them up. So many have pictured when Christ returns, it talks about separating the sheep from the goats, and they think that they all are going to stand before his throne and be told which way to go, as the Protestants say, heaven or hell. But it isn't that way. We are being judged daily right now, and I know we know that. This is our time of salvation. And we are never going to go before him and be told, you did this, 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 and our sins enumerated of the past, brought to us and then told, you're rejected. That's just not going to happen. Why? Because right now, our sins are forgiven. We don't have to die for them. Now, as we continue to live, we still make mistakes and sin. But we go to him daily, and his sacrifice is always there for us as a continuing sacrifice. Because he isn't dead anymore. It wasn't a one-time thing. He's alive now. And he can forgive us, and his father can, and they both will and do. So we don't have to worry about that. Now, we need to stand in that liberty. But what we tend to do, and this we need to train ourselves away from, and that is that we may not have our sins brought up by others, we may at family gatherings where people know, uh, and sometimes family gatherings aren't real pleasant things to be at because people know. And they look at you with disdain, or they speak to you with disdain, or they don't speak to you, or whatever the consequence in that family, because they remember those offenses. They remember those sins. They remember the things you did to them 40, 50 years ago. They won't forget. So it's uncomfortable. A lot of people don't like family reunions. They think they feel obligated to go there, but they're saying, oh no, I run into her or him. <laughs> you know? God intended it to be forgotten. By those relatives, by God himself, and believe it or not, by us. We are supposed to 
depart from the past. When we go down into the water at baptism, it represents, it's a symbol of death. That's why God requires immersion, not sprinkling on the head. It's because it pictures a burial of the old self. And the water of the word, and Christ himself says his, are the, the, the waters of life, his words. So the way of the world is supposed to go down in that water, and out of there comes someone washed clean by death. The symbolism is of death at baptism. So the old man dies, and there's a new life that begins with the laying on of hands and the conception of the Spirit of God with our mind. So the past is to be washed away and start a new life. Then, from there on, you only have to deal with if you continue to or mistakenly sin, then you have to go to God and ask for forgiveness on a daily basis. But you don't have to carry the past around. Sometimes we tend to, and it affects our peace of mind, our joy, our happiness, because we worry about the past. That's where faith comes in. Do we have faith and do we believe in the sacrifice of Christ that it did remove those things? Once removed, they're no longer there. It's as if they're gone. Why do you worry about something that's gone? It no longer is a factor. It can't kill you anymore because it was forgiven. And if it can't kill you, why worry about it? But sometimes we have trouble unhitching the trailer and leaving it behind. We want to drag it around behind us. And that affects our liberty in Christ. So it's that guilt that we're to leave. Now, I won't say that the consequences don't remain. Some of the things we've done in the past, things we've gone through, uh, child-rearing errors, uh, errors with co-workers at work, uh, husband and wife difficulties and fights and divorces and all those things that we have done that created turmoil still have consequences that remain. The penalty, ultimately, of death for sin is gone. It's just that we live with what it caused. You don't undo divorce. <laughs> it happens, and it isn't pleasant. It's bad. It creates all kinds of problems for everybody. Man, woman, kids, you name it. So those consequences, as long as we're in this human life, are going to remain. But since you know the penalty for having created that situation has been removed, then you try to move away from the consequences as much as you possibly can. But they leave scars, is what I'm saying. They leave uh, difficult emotional issues and so on. But knowing that we've been freed from the penalty, then we 
trying to deal with the consequences as favorably as possible. Repair what you can repair with whoever your difficulties have ever been with in any part of your life. And some of the things that you've done to yourself. Some of those are hard to deal with and remove as well. But the liberty that is in Christ is to be free from all that because of the penalty he paid. And he's not going to mention them to you again. Let me finish that thought. We do not go before that judgment seat and get sorted left and right. That sorting is being done with us right now. We are before the judgment seat today and tomorrow and as long as we live on this earth. And God, the two of them, the Father and the Son, are watching us day by day to see if we're headed the right direction, to see if we're growing, if we're overcoming, if we're putting sin out, if we're departing from the ways of Satan and the world and heading his way. Because a judgment finally has to be made, is this a person that I want in my kingdom to live with forever and to, to live with these others that I'm going to put in my kingdom and to live peacefully and happily forever and ever? Is this person going to fit in there? He's not trying to get rid of us. He's not trying to consign us to the lake of fire. He's trying to get us to grow to the point and learn from what we've seen in the world, what we've experienced in the world, that the world's way is no way to live. It creates problems. It's called the works of the flesh. Now, work can be good, and work can be enjoyable and satisfying, but these things of the flesh work on us. They work on us. They work on our attitudes. They work on our self-esteem, our feelings, our feelings about others. And it is not a good work. It is a tear-down work. So he calls them the works of the flesh. These are what work out if you follow the flesh. And he calls the things of the Spirit the fruit of the Spirit. Now, compare those two words. I like good fruit. It's juicy and sweet, and you look forward to that. Compare works and fruit. I'll go for the fruit <laughs> pretty much every day. Because it is something that is uplifting and up, upward always. Our minds tend toward going down. He created us that way on purpose so that we could learn that Satan's downward pull is a difficult way to live and it causes all kinds of problems. Now, he has lived with the problems caused by Satan's ego and vanity and offense for a long time and he's going to finally bind him where he can't influence anybody, and he wants us to share with him the joy 
of eternal life without any downward pulls whatsoever. I can't imagine a mind that just automatically wants to do right. We have to make ourselves do right. Sometimes doing right is not easy. But sin, wrong thinking, negative thinking, oh, that's just, oh, that rolls right out. That's so easy. The other is difficult. So he gave us this mind on purpose. He could have given us a fruitful, upward-lifting mind, like he did the angels, just as easy as he gave us this thing. Just as easy. But if we're going to live forever with him, he wants to know that we will never, ever rebel. So the purpose of this life was to put us through misery overall. So that we might never want to go back to it. Now, there are joys, there are happiness in life, and he doesn't want us to just be miserable. I didn't mean it that way. But he wants us to go through trial, trouble, tribulation, misery, consequences of sin, the penalties of sin to a certain degree, emotionally and mentally and physically and spiritually, so that when the change comes, we'd never want to go back there. That's the whole lesson of life. But we need to escape this and go to something better. So as we're judged day by day, Right now, you and I, who've been called, he's making that decision. Is this one that I want to live with forever? Or is this someone no, nobody would want to live with ever? Which is it? And he is positive. His mercy endures forever. He knows we're prone to sin. He knows how our minds work and that we're but dust. So, our judgment being now, judgment is now upon the house of spiritual Israel. When he returns, you're not going before the judgment seat. You've already been there. You're there today. You will either rise from your grave or standing on the earth and be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, or you won't. Decisions already made. And if you're not in the first resurrection, having been already judged and found not acceptable, then you stay there until the third resurrection, and the judgment's already been made. You're going to the lake of fire. Why do your sins need to be enumerated, do you? If the judgment's already been made, out of here. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth because people will see what they missed out on. They'll see people, perhaps they knew, who are glorified and they're looking at being burned up. And they can't cross that chasm, as Christ put it, uh, between immortality and mortality. So realize that we've been freed from the past, now let's move on to the future and not carry the past with us. He even says that once we're in his kingdom, we'll have no more concern about the past. 
we won't be like all the veterans with one leg and one arm sitting on the bar stool at the uh, American Legion, rehashing all their old war stories. Got to tell all our war stories. They spend, many veterans spend the rest of their life because war impacts them so much, reliving vicariously what they went through. The killing, the horror, the injuries, the wretchedness of war that they saw remains with them. And not only that, they're kind of proud of it. They're still alive, and they're proud of having been in the Army or the Marines or the Navy or the Air Force. Proud of being part of a killing machine? No. No. War stories need to end when the war ends. You don't live in the past. The war is done and gone. Forget about it. I get frustrated and bored real fast when people start telling all their military experience. Yeah, it was part of your life. It isn't anymore. Get over it. Put your vanity, your ego, your pride aside. And realize you were part of something that is satanic. War is satanic. Satan is the one that created the first war with God and his angels. And he's been stirring people against themselves ever since, starting with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. That was a small war. Cain killed Abel. But it was a war. And death ensued. Now, Cain was marked, and people didn't sit around and tell war stories with Cain. They avoided it. And we've had wars ever since. And Satan stirs wars, and he's stirring a world war right now. And a lot of people are going to be wounded and maimed and killed and starved to death. War is a horrible thing. Why would you want to relive it? Why would you want to talk about all these things of the past? Partly because it scarred you. It messed with your emotions and your feelings and your balance in life. And part of it is just plain old human vanity, pride, and ego, because I served my country. You helped your country whip up on innocent people is what you did. You should be ashamed of it, not proud of it. All those Vietnamese that were killed unmercilessly for political reasons. That's all it was, was political reasons. These people that went to Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya, those people had done nothing wrong. Their leaders had done nothing wrong, essentially. Our proud young people were being sent over there to maim and kill because of oil and the almighty petrodollar. We whipped up on so many nations and then we come back bragging about the things we did in the war. Or telling sorry stories about the bad things that the government did if we learn. God is against war. He's against competition. He's against pride and ego. And all those young Men who go off to be cannon fodder 
are told and indoctrinated and propagandized that we're going out there to make the world a better place for democracy. Proud to be an American. Proud of what? Beating up on innocent people and killing and maiming them for political reasons, for fat old men in boardrooms who are getting wealthy off the death of other soldiers and our own. They use those young men to make money, and their lives mean nothing. But we don't put the picture together, see? So we're proud to have served our nation. No, we need to be ashamed that we didn't serve God, love God, obey God, and have Him protect us from our enemies. From square one, that's what God told Israel to do. Serve me, and I will protect you. But they decided they'd rather fight and kill. And did, on and on and on. I'd rather be in one like Gideon did. Get my little lamp and just 300 of us and go out and wave that around and shout. Maybe blow some trumpets and scare them all and they kill each other and run. That's my kind of fighting. Let God do it. <laughs> he can scare them. He can take care of us. But as a nation, we'd rather do it the other way because it's profitable for people who are defense contractors and generals and politicians who get money back on the backside. And they kill all of our young men in order to do it. And leave young wives with babies at home without fathers because of their own greed. Now, is that something to be proud of or ashamed of? Let us repent and not be warlike. Of course, those people who were involved have been propagandized to believe they were doing something noble. And they weren't. They were doing something despicable that God hates. And that's any war effort. Any war effort. He doesn't like war effort between you and me as church members right here. He wants us to love one another and take care of one another and encourage and strengthen one another. Not be at odds and at war with conflicting emotions and offenses and all this stuff. That's the works of the flesh. We should have liberty from that. And you and I here have a perfect opportunity to do it God's way because we understand. So we can file away our pride, our vanity, our ego, our self, and be humble and meek and contrite and get along in peace and safety. And I think we've accomplished that pretty well here in this Passover season. I've not heard about one argument or fight or haven't heard any coming in the middle of the night. Uh, I think we've gotten along pretty well and maybe we've achieved somewhat of the peace of Christ. I certainly hope so. We need to keep it that way and make it even better. So let's not be proud of our past, whether it be whatever kind of pride we have. Some people have pride in their intellect, some in their muscles, 
some in their good looks, some in their professional status, some in their war status. It can come from a plethora of directions. And all of it needs to be washed away, forgotten, and not remembered. And let's think of something good to say. Because we are to have the liberty in Christ. So we went through the works of the flesh, all these things that cause trouble for human beings. Now, let's look on down a little bit. All these things we read about in verse 19 and 20 and 21, he says, I told you in past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what I've been saying here and taking more words to do it. But anybody who is full of these things, which are very, very common all the world around us, hatred, murder, over-partying, drunkenness, uh, it goes on and on, adultery, fornication, lying, stealing, all the things he mentions here cause trouble. And God does not want that kind of trouble in his kingdom. doesn't want it there. So he says they won't be there if they insist on being that way. Now, if we give up all that, and that's the way most people live, nearly all people live, is verses 19 through 21. That is common, everyday human behavior is what that is. And it's satanic behavior at the same time. They won't be in the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit... Now, here's what you fill the void that is left when you quit doing all this other stuff that isn't good. The fruit of the Spirit, first of all, is love. You can go to 1 Corinthians 13, and he says, he goes through a whole chapter about love there, and how we're to treat one another, and to be kind and gentle and, and loving, and to care about each other to the point of not doing anything to anybody that you would not want done to you. Think about that. You say something mean about somebody, you wouldn't want to say about you. You put them down, you wouldn't want to be put down. It's so easy to let things that are negative roll out of our minds and tongues. Maybe it doesn't even go through the mind. Maybe it's just the tongue that spouts it out. No, it has to go through the mind to some degree to come out the mouth. But he says there that love, faith, and hope are the three biggest things. And that the greatest is love. So he lists, Paul lists that first here. John, the apostle, is pointed out by John himself and perhaps others as well, that he had a special relationship with Christ. He was comfortable enough with him that if Christ was leaning against a tree or a rock, he'd come lean on him. Well, that's not part of our Western culture and would immediately begin to recoil uh, thinking of homosexuality and that kind of thing. But no, it was just with them a friendly, comfortable closeness that had nothing to do with anything foul or vile, but they were close 
because there was no works of the flesh there. It was the kindness that he was reflected from Christ and came back through John. And John had more of a personality that accepted that easily than some of the others did. Now, when some of them said, you don't have to die, you can live. We'll go out there and we'll whoop those Romans. And he says, settle down, you sons of thunder. Where's this war talk come from? He didn't, he didn't want war. He says, if my servants were of this world, then they would fight. But they are not of this world, therefore they will not fight. So how do we go into the military and fight, whether we kill or not, part of the, part of the act of killing, and then come out proud on the other side when we're doing something that is against God's will, against his purposes? That is to be ashamed of and repented of not forever talked about and bragged about. American Legion is not a good place to be. Because <laughs> that's basically all they do there. But love. You want to talk about war? You want to talk about love? Well, which is the most profitable? So you replace the war talk, the hate talk, the all my wonderful experiences there talk with love, kindness towards someone else. Those are the commandments. And see how that sets us free? If you love God more than anything, then you're pleasing the creator of the universe. And pleasing him makes life more joyful. It makes him want to bless us, and nothing but good can come from loving God above everything else and not doing anything that would displease or upset him. Your life is automatically better. You're free from worry. You know, some people say something and think, I guess I better move under over lightning might strike, or they tell somebody else that. Be careful what you say. God might not like what you just said. Well, there's some truth to that, isn't there? So pleasing him should be our number one motivation, not pleasing ourselves. Because to please the self frequently involves sin. It involves things that might be pleasurable to us, but are not what we should be doing because it brings grief and misery not only to ourselves, but others. So pleasing him gives us liberty from worry, liberty from guilt, liberty from all those negative emotions. I like my day better when at the end of the day I can say, thank you for a good day, Father. Thank you for that everything went well. Thank you that we're all still alive. Thank you for your blessings. It was a profitable productive, good day. I'd like to go before him and say that. 
I don't much like it when I have to say, Oh, Father in heaven, <laughs> I need forgiveness. I need your mercy. I need grace. I need you to forget everything that happened this day. You know, contrast those two days. Because at some time or another, you're going to have to face God. We're in a relationship with Him as our Father. And even as children growing up, you have to face Dad. You might skirt around Him some, but sooner or later you have to face your father or your mother with your conduct. Or they face you with it. And it wasn't always pleasant to you. So you liked those days better than the end of the day. Your parents were happy with you about what went on that day. Got the lawn mowed, got the dishes washed. Uh, wow, didn't fight and argue with me over whose turn it was. This has been a pretty nice day. Mom and Dad are happy. And therefore, you're happy. But then there are those days. I remember some of them. Dad had just reached down. And he'd start unbuckling his belt. And that was not a fun, fine day for me. I almost gave him a heart attack on several occasions. Because he'd grab me by the elbow and we would go round and round and round until he couldn't breathe anymore. And that was the only time relief came. He had to stop so he could catch his breath. I didn't like that. I think back and I still don't like it. But I think back and I know I needed it. <laughs> I needed it. So God chastens every son whom he loves. He knows we need it. And he doesn't let us get away with it beyond a certain point, and especially when we're his. So your days are better when you show love toward God. And your days are also better when you show love toward your neighbor. Because you're not at odds with each other. You're not frustrated with each other. You're not muttering about so-and-so and what they said or what they did today. Because it didn't happen. Because everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be treated well. And if we treat each other the same way we want to be treated, everybody's happy. And we have the liberty of enjoying the evening instead of, <clears throat> that's not an enjoyable evening. <laughs> you see, the difference between bondage to sin, bondage to negativity, and the liberty that is in forgiveness and not infringing on the rights of others or having them infringe on yours. So love is a fruit of the Spirit that produces a good, sweet, wonderful thing. Peace of mind and body. And right after love comes joy. It's hard to be joyful when you're suffering under a difficulty in whatever relationship. I know, regardless, that I'm going to have to go to God in prayer. You know, sometimes I really don't want to. I really don't want to go because I know I'm going to have to be contrite and humble and admit whatever it is that I've thought or done. 
and talk it over with him and ask for help and forgiveness and let's fix this. Fixing things is not easy. Have you noticed? Something's unfixed. It takes energy, time, work, emotion to get it fixed. Whether it's a car or a house or a human being, it takes work to fix it. So if it doesn't get unfixed, aren't we better off? Just don't cause offense or take offense and you can have joy. We should be joyful. It's nice to be able to sing hymns to God, sing praise to God, offer praise to God, offer compliments to each other. So often we might think something about somebody and think, well, that was nice of them. That was so thoughtful. Without laying it on too thick, tell them so. And I appreciated how you handled that. I appreciated being told that. I was having a down day and you kind of picked me up. A frown nobody wants to see. Keep it to yourself. Who wants to see a frown? I like to see people smile and be happy, don't you? I walk through a store, get in line. The clerk's been taking this garbage off people all day long about why the prices are so high and why this and why that. Not her or his fault that the price is high because the service was bad back there in the back end of the store. They just have to listen to it all day. And I think you'd probably tend to begin to get grumpy. You've been standing there for seven and a half hours. Your legs hurt. Your back hurts. You're hungry. You just want to go home and have a nice husband or wife give you a leg and back rub. That's what you'd really like. But instead, here's another customer giving you garbage. So they, some of them begin to, you can see it on their face. They try to be nice. How are you? Having a good day? They have to say that over and over and over and over again all day long to everybody, no matter what. So when I see them and I recognize a bit of a frown before they turn it on and, and turn and say, how are you today? I saw their face before they turned and put on the fake grin. So, I tried to say something that might make them smile. Something simple. It doesn't have to be anything big. Just something nice. And they haven't heard that much all day, so they react to it. Wow. <laughs> That's not what I've been hearing. You don't have to stand and talk to them for ten minutes and slow it down and make the next customer even worse. But you can be pleasant. And they like to see somebody come through who's pleasant after all the frowns they've gotten all day long. Isn't it better? Isn't it friendlier? Isn't it nicer? To try to make their job just a little easier instead of a little harder. Just a small thing. But we're in a hurry, and we're impatient, and we won't take the time sometimes to try to make somebody's day better. It's easy to say, have a nice day. But to actually think of something that might help them have a nice day requires maybe a little effort. 
and a pleasant, joyful thought. So if we're motivated then by God's Spirit, He has a spirit of joy. And therefore, we should feel the joy of His love, of the love of our brethren, and a sadness for the plight of the world around us, to be kind to them, to spread a little bit of joy. If we have it, that it should automatically come out from us and make somebody else a little bit joyful because we are. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And everybody's better off. If they smile at me and I smile at them and we'll make some little inane joke about the weather or whatever, then we both just feel a little peace from that. That's just a simple little example. There are many, many that we come across through a day. So if we exhibit love, concern, in how we approach people, and then the joy of God's Spirit dwelling in us, because we're joyful to have the opportunity of eternal life, we have the opportunity of going to God and talking to Him and sharing our life with Him, creating joy in him, because that's he has joy. We don't always think of God as being joyful, but he is. It's one of the fruits of his spirit. He is not a glowering monster. He has a sense of humor. He has a sense of joy. Right? That's one thing I like about having animals around. I watch chickens. I watch goats, and I see how God made them, to little goats, to jump around and play and pretend but each other, and oh, they're just having a fun, and when they're nursing on mama, their little foot tails just go 100 miles an hour. That's so fun and so joyful to be getting some milk from mama. It, little things like that that I see in nature... I realize God has a sense of joy. He likes the animals to have a sense of well-being, to be happy. He created that little goat's tail and the nerves that are in it and the sensations in his brain and his nervous system that make his tail go like that. That didn't just happen. Every one of them does it. I've been watching hundreds and hundreds through my life, and every one of them does it. It was programmed to show his joy. <laughs> and does. So when I see little things like that, it makes me realize, no, God is not a glowering monster. He carefully designed every little thing about every one of those animals. And every one of them has some things it does. Well, maybe not an alligator, but most of them that are fun and peaceable, interesting to watch, and can, can bring laughter and joy to us. God has a sense of humor. I look at some things that he's created, <laughs> how did you come up with that? Because it's just funny to look at you know, duckbill platypus. To me, that's a funny thing. It just He was having a 
joyful day, I guess, when he designed that. I don't think platypuses have a bad self-esteem. But God has done an awful lot of things in creation that are a joy to behold. So that's the side of him that we may not think of him because of Protestant or Catholic teaching, but it's all around us in the creation. And we need to take time to stop and enjoy the things he's done. Does being joyful, being full of laughter and fun at the moment, frustrate you? No. Makes you feel good. Makes you feel at peace. That's the next fruit. God's Spirit is peace. An argument, a fight, does not create joy or peace. It creates frustration, upset, hard feelings, difficulties. But God's Spirit includes none of those things. We don't do them, and therefore we are at peace. There is the liberty in Christ. It's not it's not liberty from keeping the commandments. It's a matter of keeping the commandments because that's what frees us from all the negative stuff. And long-suffering. We should be willing to suffer long. Now, if you're going to suffer, and it's going to be a long time that it happens, then you need to have an attitude toward it that is not upsetting and frustrating. What does he tell us? Count it all joy, the trials, troubles, persecutions that we might go through. Now, when somebody's giving you a hard time, how do you count it as joy? It isn't fun. Well, it's joy because you know it's creating within you patience and peace and self-control. And self-control is a good thing. Because if they are slinging mud at you, putting you down, rebelling against you, and you're patient with it, then you're okay in your own mind, see? If they're full of hate and anger and misery, and they're spewing it at you, they're the ones that are miserable. They think you are making them miserable. No, you're not. Well, you could be in part. But their lack of controlling their own thoughts and emotions and feelings is what's making them angry and frustrated. And if you don't react to it, and you let it roll off your back or go over your head, and don't let it upset you, then you're better off. Because you are suffering over a period of time, and you're taking it patiently, and you look upon it as one of those things that's helped you develop self-control in the mind of God, and, and handle it the way Christ himself would have handled it. And that leaves with it a feeling of well-being, because you handled it well. You didn't let it upset you and get to you. So long-suffering can be a benefit. 
Sometimes we suffer along with health issues, mental issues, financial issues, all kinds of issues we suffer with as human beings. But if we're learning from it, we're learning to deal with it in a patient way, we're not letting it destroy our world, then we're better off. It's when you lose control of your attitude is when you get in trouble. And so long-suffering is a thing of God. And he has that. He suffered quite a while with us human beings, hasn't he? And yet he sees the other end. He sees what he's going to do with us and how he's going to make us happy and put us in his kingdom and give us no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. All those things he promises there in Revelation 21. Let's go back there just for a minute. That's beautiful. Chapter 21. The bride comes down prepared for her husband. Verse 4. Well, verse 3. The tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. Right there with them. No more remote. No more unseeable. But right there. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death. Neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. That sounds pretty good to me. You know, I've suffered with every one of those things. I've cried a lot of bitter tears in my life. I've suffered the loss of loved ones and go through the sorrows and dealing with death. No sorrow. No feeling bad about anything that happens because nothing bad is going to ever happen again. Nothing to be sorrowful about nor crying, nor any more pain. I suppose all of us here have suffered pain, have we not? Through injury, through accident, through disease, through emotional pain and scars. We've been through all kinds of pain. There's no more of that. Now, that's what the fruit of God's Spirit produces. And when we're changed, we'll never go back to this. Who would want us? If you went through a life of sorrow and pain and misery and suffering here as a human being, and then you're in an environment where none of that exists anymore, why would you ever want to go back to it? That's the lesson he's trying to get off to, over to us. Is that there's something better coming, and you don't want this anymore. And all of these things are building here as we're reading in verse 22. Gentleness. If you have control and you have love and joy and peace in your heart, then you can learn to be gentle with others instead of mean and nasty and ornery. But gentle. Goodness. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody could say of you, there's a good person. That person is just a good person and whatever all that means to them, and why they would say it. 
you know, by nature we are not good. By nature we are deceitful and desperately wicked, and the mind is a mess. Who can know it? But the fruit of God begins to be good, and people can then see goodness, and we can feel the goodness. Faith. Believing God is going to do what we just read in Revelation 21. Trusting Him. The fruit of His Spirit, of being filled with His Spirit, is that we come to trust Him and believe Him. We've lived a life where trust has been broken by parents, by siblings, by co-workers, by everybody we've been around. And then we have a great deal of time trusting. But isn't it nice to trust? To know that if something happens here, that person is going to react the right way. They will take care of it. You know, I've known some people in my life that I, I figure if I ever got in trouble, if I ever needed anything, I could call so-and-so, and I knew they'd be there. I just knew them well enough, and I'd seen them, how they acted and how they'd done things with other people, and I knew if I was ever down and in deep trouble, I'd count on them. They'd be there. Now, that's not total trust. God says, trust no man. You can trust God. His word is inviolable. It will work. Everything about him, anything he promises, is going to happen. We just have to do our part because all his promises are contingent upon us doing our part. But if we do our part, he's just going to do it. So we need to learn to trust God implicitly with our lives. I want him to be the one who decides how long I live, how I live, what condition I'm in as I live, I want him to be the final word. I want to look to him. And if I'm in trouble, I know he'll hear. I know from all of the stories in here that sometimes he lets people die. I know sometimes he heals them. I know he can. So why can't I trust him implicitly with my whole being? It's hard. We're trained to trust medical science. We're trained to trust doctors. We're trained to trust other people. And now we're learning that those doctors are poisoning us on purpose. We're learning that the American Medical Association and the all those people are causing death and destruction because they're on Satan's wavelength. Why do I want to go to the devil to get something good? I don't want their drugs. I don't want their medicines. I don't want their poisons. I want to be anointed and put myself in God's hands. And if he chooses to heal me, wonderful and good. If he chooses to let me die, he had a reason for it. I have over my whole life seen other people and my own children and my own wife, different ones, be healed by God. I've seen it with my own eyes and felt it. 
So why then get scared that I might die and go to the gods of this world for healing? I don't want to go to man for something God has said he is. And if I've lived enough time on this earth that he says, man, I think I'll let you go this time, I'm okay with that. I'm his child. I'm his son. He's my father. He loves me more than anybody ever has. And whatever he chooses to do with me is his business. And I have to accept that in faith that I can trust him to do what's best for me no matter what. No matter what. I'm his. I don't belong to the world. I don't belong to Satan. I belong to him. So why do I keep trying to take it back? You know? It says back there that Asa died because he sought the physicians instead of the God. That was a penalty put on Asa because he went to the doctor instead of the God. I didn't write that in the Bible. And if you go to the doctor, that's your business. And if you get sick and you say, take me to the hospital, I've hauled more people to the hospital from here than anybody else has. Guaranteed. Or followed them. One of the two. I'm here to support you and to help you serve God. But if you're a little weak or a little unsure or you decide you want to do this at the moment, I'll help you do what you want done. And I hope you learn what you need to learn. And I hope your faith in God will grow. Because none of us are a perfected example. We'll all make some wrong decisions. We'll all do things we shouldn't do. And I'm not saying you should never go to a doctor. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. I know that they're of this world and that they do a lot of things that are not the way God would do it and contrary to it. Do I think there should be people trained to set bones and to sew up wounds? Yes. There's no problem with that. Are there things that we can take that would be good for our health? He said he made the herbs to be medicine for us. So a God who created all the beautiful things that are there included herbs. So a natural thing that God made is going to be better for us overall than some chemical that man has put together that has, by its very nature, side effects. So I've got no problem with us doing what we can within God's parameters for ourselves. I've had bones set because they were broken and they weren't going to reset themselves. And God hasn't said that he will do all that. So there should be people trained to do it. But should they stop at a certain point and not go on to this and this and this and that procedure that is beyond where God would have them go and they begin to take over his domain? Now, where that line is, I do not know, and God has not defined it that carefully, so that we have to learn to make wise, good decisions. And sometimes we make good ones. Sometimes we don't make such good ones. 
and we learn from it. So we don't want to condemn anybody because they do this, 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 or that. We want to pray for them. We want to help them, to encourage them. And their decision-making progress is a matter of a learning curve, just like all of us. So we need to be careful not to be condemnative, to be putting somebody down uh, for the decisions they make, but pray for them, let them be in God's kingdom, regardless, and that they'll learn from whatever they're going through, what they need to learn. So, trust God implicitly, trust God, trust man within certain boundaries. And that's what he's saying when he said, trust no man. It, it's a matter of a comparison. You can trust God implicitly, but man, only so far. But we don't want to go around with an untrusting attitude either, because if we're trusting God, we're in a good mood. And then if man can be entrusted with certain things, then that's encouraging. And we need to develop a certain amount of trust in people. How was trust destroyed in the first place? It was destroyed because of abuse and misuse and all kinds of things that are other than the works of the place. That's how trust was destroyed. You know how little kids are when they're so big, and they look at Daddy, and, oh, he is amazing. He is wonderful. I want to be like Daddy. I want to do everything Daddy does. And they'll mock you and mimic you and act like you, and they'll say the things you say, good or bad, because they want to be like Dad. And then a certain point comes where they start to get over that. <laughs> I don't always know why. Uh, but that's part of their human nature coming out. The rebellion, the, all the stuff that's in a human being's mind. It isn't all your fault. If you'd have taught them better, maybe they wouldn't be as bad. But they're human. And we've all been misused and abused one way or another to one degree or another in our lives. But that needs to be healed. And the best place to heal it is among people like you who all understand this process and are working on it day by day. We aren't at all, any of us, totally trustworthy. But we should be working toward coming to the place that people will trust us. That's what we should be working toward, is that they know that if I say yes, I mean yes, and I'll do it. If I know, say no. I mean no, and no is the answer, unless I repent, <laughs> or whatever. But we need to become trustworthy. And people who've been misused and abused find it very, very difficult to overcome that hurdle. So we need to be helping each other with it. Help each other with it. Be kind, be gentle, be loving, be responsive. Uh, whatever you say, mean it. I'm out of time. I meant to let you go a little earlier today, last day. Uh, but we're about done here. The next is meekness. Lack of vanity, lack of pride, lack of ego. 
It's our pride usually that offends us, isn't it? Uh, our ego, our self, in some way, if it's attacked in some way, there's where the pride, the ego rises up. Well, we're, we're supposed to get rid of that and be meek. And if somebody says something nasty to you, smile and I tell you, you know, I, I'm sure your mother loved you, and uh, I'm trying to love you too. <laughs> but don't be that way. <laughs> or, or whatever. But don't take offense. Don't get angry. Don't get upset. All that does is destroy your day. Uh, temperance. It's a wonderful quality of God's Spirit. Uh, over-drinking and over-partying create all kinds of problems for people. But drinking an amount that relaxes you, maybe gives you a little buzz, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it, it can make it easier to talk, remove a little inhibition, but you don't want a whole lot of inhibition removed, right? You don't need to be dancing on the table, or whatever, or laying on the ground so drunk you can't get up. So, using things God has given us, alcohol is a wonderful thing. But if you live very long on this earth, you've seen it misused and abused, and it becomes an awful thing. So it isn't the thing that's bad, it's the misuse or lack of control that creates a bad situation. Because people will say, they may have normally have some inhibitions, and they wouldn't say something, but they'll say, but maybe it's in the back of their mind that's mean, ornery, nasty, or whatever, and they normally wouldn't say it. They'd try to control that. But when they get enough alcohol in them, oh, man, here it comes. Watch out. So, all through the Bible, it says alcohol's fine, but used moderately. Food is fine, but we don't need to weigh 400 pounds. I use that extreme because I have extra weight and I don't want to uh, act or look like I eat too much. Maybe I need to exercise more and not eat quite so much. But would I feel better, get around better? Yeah, I'm working at it. But it's difficult. My body loves to get fat. Some of yours love to be skinny. And I don't like you. But I have to be very careful. Some of you can just sit there and eat and eat and eat. And couldn't gain a pound if you tried. And then you brag about it. Well, I can just eat and eat and eat. And I don't gain any weight. I don't like you when you're that way. Because I am the other way. But that's my problem, you see. It's not your problem. Unless you're self-righteous and vain and egocentric about something. Because you didn't give yourself the metabolism you have. Do you realize that? That came through genetics. That didn't come through your self-control. So people look at somebody that is overweight, and they despise them. They really do. And they make nasty, mean comments about them because they're overweight. Well, yeah. They drain weight easily. You can eat the same amount, and this one stays skinny, and this one gets fat. 
So why get self-righteous about it and put them down because they're fat, because you're skinny? That's just vanity, ego, and self-righteousness is what that is. It's putting people down for something they don't, you don't have a problem with. Well, I'll guarantee you, you may not have that one, but you've got another one. Everybody has a problem. And most people have a whole bunch of them. So don't get self-righteous about one you don't even have in the first place. Get humble about the ones you do have. And don't be judgmental. Against such, there is no law. These things that we've been reading about today, there's no law against them. They don't hurt anything. They don't create any problems. What problems do love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance cause? None. They are liberty. They are freedom. Your freedom from all bad emotions, the works of the flesh cause, and you're free in these good attitudes that the fruit of the Spirit of God gives. The law against those. You're at liberty to have as much love, as much patience, as much faith as you can muster. You're at liberty to do that. And those are all things we want. Those things we read about here are all the things that people want, and they go to the works of the flesh to try to get them. And they fail miserably. Because the works of the flesh don't produce the love, the joy, the peace, and the happiness in life that everybody wants. We want the result, but we don't like the method. As I say over and over about child rearing. The method of getting that child to be sweet and obedient is hard on that child's rear end or their psyche or whatever because it needs change. And we have to help them change it. Otherwise, they're going to be Al Capones and Hitlers. Because that's the way human nature goes. And we love them. All those people in Washington. Oh, man. Thieves, liars, corrupt, pedophiles. Every work of the flesh there is resides in Washington, D.C., and we voted them there. Why? Because we live the same way they do. They're only representatives of what we are. We blame them, but the minute one of us gets there and somebody says, I'll give you a million dollars, you'll vote this way. Oh, really? You're no different than they are, by nature. This has to grow over time through the Spirit of God. And you and I are in a prime place to get to do this. Be thankful. Be joyful. Here's our opportunity for once in our miserable lives to get along and live at peace with each other. How rare is that in this world? Pretty rare. God's given us a wonderful chance to go there and be that. And that's why we're putting the works out of the flesh these seven days and trying to come to have more of the Spirit of God so that we get along better with him and better with each other. And we have liberty from all the negativity that is in the world. So let's get that picture. That's, that's what we're after. That's what these days are about. 
Not just quit sinning because sinning's bad. No. The fruits of doing it God's way are just so much better in life. Thank you again for all your cooperation in making this a great time. And we look forward to Pentecost now.